0: Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Griggs, and I'm the host of the Renaissance Podcast. And Alongside me today is Linda Felace from Three Shepherds Cheese. Thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Ryan.
0: So I guess to get started, if we can just take back before starting Three Shepherds Cheese, um, yeah, what was your journey that brought you to, to starting that?
1: Um, my husband and I were working at the University of Nottingham School of Agriculture, And he was working with some Chinese Maishan pigs that are very prolific. And I was working on mad cow disease. Um, Our jobs were coming to an end and my sister Mary gave us a book, What Colors Your Parachute? And this is a book that you do a bunch of exercises and figure out, you know, what do you wanna be when you grow up? And we knew we wanted to do something in agriculture, something that we could work together, that we could work with our children And that would be financially viable those were the parameters and then one day larry came home from the british the the library on campus and he had come across the british sheep dairy newsletter and he was very excited he says i know what we're going to do we're going to milk sheep (laughs) (laughs) and realized this was 1993 and at that point i didn't realize you could milk sheep and even though i had grown up in a farm. Um, and he grew up in a a foodie family. His mom came from restaurants. His father's 100% Sicilian, but yet, and he has a PhD in animal physiology, but nobody had ever mentioned milking sheep. And so that was the start of our journey. We came back to the States, moved to Vermont, and did research and found out that at that point, the USDA figures were showing that over 50 million pounds of sheep smoked cheese was being imported into the, the U.S. every year, and less than 0.001% was produced here. Wow. And the reason was we didn't have the genetics. And so, so that was the start of our journey. We figured, well, we'll bring over dairy sheep from, you know, from Europe and get the dairy sheep industry going in the United States.
0: So once you were able to start that, because um, I, just for the listeners, I had listened to a, her story previously, and it's a it's a wild story with the USDA. So I was just hoping if we could just, um, yeah, just continue on with that story. So you you brought over the sheep, and then what was that process like? Did you have to work with the usda whenever you were importing the sheep and then also yeah what were all of the different types of there's probably a lot of paperwork i would assume
1: yeah so so what we did was we contacted the usda to find out what the regulations would be for importing the sheep and then we had to go over and visit all different countries to find out who had the bre- the best breeding stock and who had sheep that would be suitable for the vermont climate there's lots of dairy sheep in Southern Europe, um, but they're used to very dry, hot conditions. And we needed something that could deal with our 10 feet of snow that we get every year. (laughs) And um, so it was a three-year process. And um, we ended up selecting Belgium, the Netherlands, and then we brought over sheep from New Zealand. And working with USDA had been really good and you have a month quarantine, two months quarantine in the country of origin, and then a month quarantine here in the United States. And the woman that took care of the sheep in New York when they had to go through the quarantine actually cried when they left because dairy sheep are very gregarious. They're they're more like dogs. Um, When you go to the paddock, they come running to you instead of running away. which was a shock for our son's dog, who came from a herding family because he was expecting the sheep to run away, and they all came running at him and terrified him, <laughs> yeah, but um, so it took three years to get the animals over, and we we sat down with our children, asked them you know what did they want to be involved in because we wanted them to be involved, but we also wanted them to feel like they chose what they got to do. And so our nine-year-old son, Francis, wanted to be pasture manager and have the dog. And um our middle daughter, Heather, she was seven, and she wanted to milk the sheep and have a llama for guarding. So we built her portable milking parlor. And then twice a day from May to October, she'd milk the sheep. And then the six-year-old said, well, I'm gonna be the cheese maker. And we said, well, no, daddy's going to be cheesemaker." And she said, no, I'm going to be cheese. Maker. <laughs> and she started making cheese when she was nine. And then due to circumstances, by the time she was 11, she was making it on her own. By the time she was 12, her cheese was featured on Martha Stewart television. Hmm. And then by the time she was 15, she had a full page photo and article in Gourmet Magazine for being America's youngest professional cheese maker. So that's why our farm is named Three Shepherds in honor of our three children.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. So during that three years of, um, of planning and whatnot, what all were you doing? Um, I guess in terms of yeah, just the waiting period, what were you all doing in the meantime? Were you just trying to set up the, the farm and get that going by the time that the sheep would arrive?
1: Yeah. So, so we were working on finding a place to live, finding a farm. Um, You know, we had, we had saved up money, but we also, you know, didn't have, didn't know how long it was going to take for the importation. So we were doing everything from, you know, waitressing to uh, Mm -hmm. substitute teaching. We had a, a publishing editing business, um, So we had all, you know, typical Vermont, you know, the the joke in Vermont is everybody's moonlighting at something because every nobody has just one job. So we had multiple jobs going Um, and then working with the USDA and, you know, figuring out the regulations, the health protocols, uh, um, making sure we had the milk production records, because that was really important because there were sheep that were coming over into Canada from Britain, but they didn't have the milk production records. And if you really wanted to get the industry going, you needed to know, you know, what were the genetics of the sheep you were dealing with?
0: Are there, whenever USDA is looking at that, are there certain factors to, that, I guess, are alarming to where they would prevent you from having those sheep?
1: Um, w- could, w- what do you mean? I'm not following.
0: I guess in terms of... Um... Actually just we can just move on that. I'm not too sure where <laughs> I'm going with that. <laughs> um so the 3 years passed and then you were able to they were able to get out of the quarantine and you're able to find a farm in Vermont.
1: Yeah.
0: I guess once you had that, what was that feeling like whenever it finally came together after those 3 years?
1: Uh it was unreal. Um you know, we just, we spent a lot of time with the sheep because we we felt like we were living in a dream. <laughs> hmm. And, you know, we would, we would constantly just randomly go out and, you know, watch the sheep in the paddock and the barn just in in disbelief because it had taken so long to put everything together. And, um, you know, the, the sheep did really well. We had to fly them over. So Larry flew on cargo planes from Europe and then I flew the sheep on a a regular plane from New Zealand, and um, you know, everything went really well. We we were we were selling the breeding stock, and we were selling sheep that we imported to other customers. And our first customer was Houghton Freeman from Vermont, um, because his father started AIG, the insurance company and he had a farm in Vermont that was very close you know he was very attached to this farm and he wanted to have a project on there that could demonstrate how to be successful at agriculture in Vermont and we're very very good at growing grass because it's a very you know wet area and it's it's a short season but grass grows very well and we're very hilly and so dairy sheep It was ideal and so mr freeman he ordered 52 dairy sheep and so that really got the business going well because um we were selling the sheep for five thousand dollars a head and so so we sold to him we sold to other people and then we started having requests from around the world, you know, because people were seeing what we were doing hmm. and wanting to get involved in similar things. The other thing that we did was Larry was the president of Vermont Sheep Breeders Association. And when I worked with Professor Lambing in England, he helped set public policy for man cow disease and there's a related sheep, a related disease in sheep called scrapie. It falls under the same umbrella of TSEs, the transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. And scrapie's been endemic in the United States. It's been around for 200 years. And there's only particular breeds of sheep that get it. But if you select the genetics within those breeds of animals that don't get it after Three years of of monitoring them, you can then be considered scrapie free. So, Professor Lamming set the first. He established the first scrapie surveillance program. And so, when we came to the states, we thought it would be good to do the same. And so, we were the first people that got Mr. Freeman's flock in the scrapie surveillance program, and then our animals when we brought them over.
0: And then, what year was this? Uh, whenever, yeah, all this was going on.
1: Yeah. So ninety ninety six 96 was when we 93, we started 96. We imported the sheep.
0: Okay. And then, yeah. so that was all that was going on to, um, how long is the process? So you're saying that then you have to monitor for additional three years to, to make sure that they don't have, um, any of these, the scrapies.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and so the animals that we imported, they were all enrolled in the, the European scrapie surveillance program. And the breeds of sheep we brought over have never ever had scrapie in two hundred years. You've never seen scrapie in East Frisian sheep. And um so we had some credit for um the animals coming over and so in nineteen ninety eight they were to receive their scrapie certificate showing that they were free and what that would mean is that then we could sell them to any flock and that um you know would really open up our um basically being able to sell the sheep and instead linda detweiler who was a senior staff veterinarian from usda who we had never met never worked with showed up at our farm and said well i'm concerned because your sheep came from europe that they could be susceptible to man cow disease, and we're like, well, there's no sheep in the world's ever had man cow disease outside of a lab, and um, you know ours are we're we're getting our scrapey certificate, and um, it, it it the whole thing ended up it, it it was a fraud perpetrated by USDA, but it was a, that was the start of another three year battle. Um, usda put our sheep under quarantine and we kept thinking trying to approach it scientifically because they wanted to destroy our sheep and in order to test for this disease you have to kill the animals and we said okay take our originals that we imported test kill them and test them and if they test negative let us keep the offspring and the semen Um, and usda refused and that's when we started realizing that this was not based on science. That something else was going on.
0: Whenever they refused, did they give you any reasoning, or yeah, well, why did they do that?
1: It, they just said that that would not be up to their standards, or that would not be acceptable to them. You know, they they would try to use some sort of sort of legalese type terminology, which. Never made any sense because if you look at it scientifically, this, you know, what we were proposing, you know, would make sense. You know, at one point it, because this was a three-year battle, it, it there were many, many different things that happened within that time, and um, finally we decided that what we would like to do is just ship all the the sheep back to York. Because we, we didn't want the animals to be killed. And we definitely did not want Europe to have a black mark on its sheep population. Because these people we worked with were wonderful. They were doing a really good do- job shepherding. And, um, you, you know, in the United States right now, we have about 6 million sheep in in the entire country. In Britain, they have 40 around 40, 42 million sheep. And so their their sheep industry is very, very large. Um, and everyone was getting really nervous because they were watching what USDA was doing. And, and because of the fear of mad cow disease, they were thinking, okay, maybe there is a problem. And so we thought, okay, let's just ship all the sheep back to Europe And so we contacted Belgium and the Netherlands and we said, would you take the sheep back? And they said they would. And they said, you know, they would probably have to kill a bunch of them to test them to make sure that there wasn't anything wrong. And we asked USDA if they would allow us to do that. And they agreed. And so Mr. Freeman hired a DC-10. We had crates being built. The sheep were going to ship out of Albany and then seven days before they were to be returned, USDA sent us a letter and said sending the sheep back to Europe would undermine the integrity of the American animal health system. And the sheep cannot go back. And even, com- even though. What's e- that? I was just
0: going to say, even though they said initially that that was OK.
1: Right. Right. And, and so what it was, was they knew there was nothing wrong with the sheep. And they knew that if they sent the sheep over and they tested them, that the Europeans would see there was nothing wrong. And then the Europeans would know that something was being perpetrated by USDA.
0: Hmm. And so while all that was going on, you were saying in this three-year battle that there's a lot of, I, I guess, other things that were happening. Uh, I don't know if you'd be able to, to talk on, I guess, just those three years and just the other battles that you were all facing with the USDA.
1: So, um, we, we, the first thing that they did was instead of giving us our scrapey certificate, they put us under quarantine and they said, you're not allowed to sell any sheep. You're not allowed to move any sheep. And they said, we're going to handle this very collegially. Um, but do not tell anyone. And so for literally a year, we didn't say anything to anyone, which was very awkward because we were leasing the land from a woman that lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we couldn't tell her that sheep on her property were being quarantined by the federal government. Um, And then finally, um, ABC's 2020 filed a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, to find out what USDA was doing for mad cow disease because realize the rest of the world tested for mad cow disease but the United States refused and so they wanted to see well you know what were what were they doing and included in the information about mad cow disease was everything that USDA was doing with us and so that got our story out into the media And that was one of the best things to happen.
0: So what happened once it got out to the media?
1: Um, The media was very curious, you know, because they're hearing all these um, suspicions from the USDA, but nothing was making sense. And so the media in general was extremely supportive because they could tell that something Unusual was going on. And so we had media from around the world. It was everywhere, you know, across the United States from New York Times to CNN to Le Monde in Paris and um, and a bunch of the Spanish. And, you know, because people were curious and they were also fearful, you know, what if they did? Because this would be the first time in the world in history that they had found mad cow disease in sheep. And so it was, it was a big story. Um, So, so the media was involved and then we took USDA to court to stop them from seizing the sheep. Um, And unfortunately, 17 days before the appeals court hearing, they showed up at 530 in the morning with 42 armed federal agents and USDA officials. And it was in the middle of a snowstorm and they took the sheep on an open livestock trailer. Out to Iowa and killed them for a disease that doesn't exist to this day.
0: Wow and w- <clears throat> what year was this on the timeline scale?
1: So that was 2001.
0: And so 17 days before the appeals court they came and without any reasoning really that th- they just took them and killed them.
1: Yeah wow. and and politically the reasoning was that once the animals were dead, then the case would have to be declared moot because there was no longer something that you were fighting about you know in legal terms, there was nothing live
0: hmm. so after they took the sheep uh, that's t- i guess yeah, what happened after that how how are you able to i guess continue on trying to fight this
1: um not not very well for a while i i tend to be a very happy person and i got very depressed and um you know larry my husband was amazing and and he's very steady and um finally he was saying well you know you you really should write about this and i would just snap at him saying i didn't want to relive it all um and he won't admit it, but I was very challenging to live with, it. <laughs> you know. Um, but it—it's—I grew up believing that that the government were here to help you, you know. The people that get to positions of power, that they achieve those through honest means, that they're they're to be respected, and um, it every single aspect of our government system basically was um I don't know, was was false. <laughs> you know I, I, I really did not expect this. you know we, we were just seeing corruption and, um, and lies ev- everywhere that you turn. and um, so then what they did was they took the sheep and, and realized when you when you take the animals in Europe, if, if they slaughter a cow they hang the carcass, they they um, do the testing, and the next morning they have the results and they know whether the animal has mad cow disease or, or not. BSE is the technical term. And um, so when they took the sheep and they killed them, they killed, they took the sheep March 23rd of 2001. So they killed them by the 28th And so they should have had the results by the 30th and everyone, you know, the media kept asking, where are the test results? Where are the test results? And by August, they still said that they didn't have the test results and they came back to our farm and they did an inspection of the farm and they made us destroy everything, anything that had come in contact with the sheep they took. So they took Heather's milking parlor. They made us dismantle the barn. They made us, um, they took anything that had come in contact with the sheep. And, and at this point I was furious and I'm chasing these guys around on the farm saying, where are the test results? You know, how can you do this without any test results? And um, what we didn't find out until a couple of years later was they had received the test results and all the sheep were negative. And what they did was they then put our farm under a five-year quarantine. And for five years, we couldn't have any ruminants. So we, we couldn't have any anything you could milk, a, a sheep, a cow, a goat, water buffalo, anything like that. Um, And any hay that came off the property had to be, quote, taken to Boston to be incinerated. You know, so they they made it seem like the farm was very contaminated. The neighbors were terrified, you know, that we have a lot of dairy farms and things around us. um, And they're wondering what's going on. And so it really USDA was trying their their hardest to get us out of business basically and um and so at one point when they took the um hay larry ended up following them and instead of going to boston they went to the local landfill and just dumped it so you know there, there was an incredible corruption going on and um it was financially very stressful we we put over 2 million dollars into the business and after USDA killed the sheep they sent our lawyer a check for 180,000 and you know of course there were over 100,000 in legal fees and um, USDA said well if you want anything else you're going to have to take us to claims court so anyone we had sold sheep to that voluntarily surrendered the animals, they were allowed to keep the offspring. They were allowed to keep the semen and USDA paid them anywhere between 7,500 to 10,000 per animal. Wow. And they took 125 of our sheep. So it was it was a slap in the face. Um, so we ended up taking them to court again this time, Mr. Freeman took USDA to claims court, and he calls us up and he said, "Look, kids." He always called us kids. <laughs> he, he said, um, "I'm going to go to court. I'm going to pay for it, but I want you to do all the work with the lawyers." And so I will go down to DC and work with the lawyers. And Mr. Freeman said, "I don't. I don't care what happens financially." He said, "I want USDA to admit what they did was wrong," and and they did. And all all the depositions, they admitted they were wrong. But we still didn't know why did they do what they did. And um, there was a documentary called Farmageddon. This is was done by Kristen Canty, and it's about um, seven or eight different farms that get raided by the federal government for no good reasons. And so our farm was included in the story and there was a showing on Capitol Hill. And um, we went down to that and uh, Iowa radio station wanted to do an interview. And so Kristen asked if I would do the interview. And during that interview, a USDA um, employee called into the station and said that he took care of the sheep when they came out to Ames, Iowa, and the whole thing was a fraud, and USDA used the sheep to get $450 million in funding from Congress to upgrade their lab facilities.
0: That just leaves me speechless. That's so insanely corrupt that they're, and I'm assuming that they're able to get that funding from all this?
1: Oh, they did. They Hmm. did. The the day that the sheep were killed, Tom Hardy went harkin excuse me <laughs> tom harkin went to um congress to ask for the money and he was very proud of it and on his website he explained how um as soon as the sheep were killed he went to so that nothing like this would ever happen again and they would have the proper facilities wow. and so now they have big fancy facilities in iowa
0: so when you were at the the farm again Showing, and I guess you heard that, yeah, what, what were the thoughts that popped in your head whenever you found out that that was the reasoning behind all of the hell that USDA had placed on you all?
1: um it it was disbelief because i I was literally doing the interview from the car, and um we have two dogs and so Larry had the dogs outside, and he's walking them while I'm doing the interview. And I'm just stunned and, and, and the way that the interview went the, um the USDA official talked about it being a fraud and the DJ was like, are you saying that, that this is a fraud? And he said, absolutely. And I have all the documents to prove it. And then the DJ said, wow, this is fascinating, but we're out of time. And he said, we'll have to follow up on this. And so I'm just stunned. And Larry gets back in the car and I'm like, you're not going to believe this and luckily the USDA employee called the radio station and gave them his number and then they contacted me so that we could connect with each other um but it it was it was, it was worse than i had expected you know um everyone had had theories along the way um but i never I never thought it would just be outright greed like that.
0: So with the media being a huge portion of this, did this make it to the media? This uh, story to where they were able to get this funding and the USDA whistleblower essentially um, explained everything?
1: That, that part didn't make it out very much into the media. Um, you know, because we we weren't the... It had been 11 years since the seizure. And so by that point, this was sort of old news. And so to dig everything up, you know.
0: Yeah. Damn. So it,
1: it, it would have been nice if it would have been <laughs> yeah. more out in the media. Yeah.
0: I guess with that too then, um, were you able to, I guess, reconcile anything from, from the court after receiving this news of the whole reasoning behind everything that happened?
1: No, because um, the claims court case was already over at that point, because Mr. Freeman was in his early 90s. And so he called us up one day and he said, look, he said, I'm going to pull the plug on the court case. I got them to admit, they admitted in their depositions that, um, that you know, there was nothing wrong with the sheep. And he said, and I got what I wanted, and I've already spent $1.4 million on legal fees. And he said, and I'd have to spend that again to take them to, um, you know, to have a trial with it. And he said, I'm, I'm getting old. I'm, I'm ready to, to just settle this. And they ended up sending him a check for 600,000. So it didn't even cover his legal fees. Um, and then, well, are you still there?
0: Oh, there you go. Sorry. cut out a little bit. Um, yeah, sorry. No, uh, I guess with that too then. Um so you received the 5-year quarantine, which did they even give a reasoning why 5 years?
1: No. No. It, it, they they had some um you know when they when they were questioned on it there was some mumbo jumbo about the prion or the the prion um but it, it didn't make any sense. You know, scientifically, it doesn't make any sense because, you know, you you can't get, they made a spray a 2% chlorine solution any place the sheep had lambed, And um obviously, if there had been scrapie or any sort of prions in the soil, um, there's no way that a 2% chlorine solution is going to do anything, you know. And yeah. and my joke was that we could have run the sheep through the hot tub at night if they really thought that that was gonna, you know, and so so it was it was very hard because there was there was no scientific um, reasoning and logic behind what they did, and it it was all for show, you know, it was all to try to make Europe and. The rest of the the country thinks that they were actually doing something.
0: Yeah, during you know, they had to. Oh, go ahead.
1: They had to create a false health scare that was scary enough that they could go to Congress that could potentially impact humans to make them pay attention to it.
0: Uh, that's so unbelievably terrible. So during these five year quarantine. Were you in agriculture at all th- during that, or did you start doing other things because of that
1: well, we we had a store that was right next to the farm, and so we were running the store and then we started um teaching cheese making back in nineteen ninety seven and so we decided we would do more of the cheese making classes and then we started doing consulting and we do consulting for cheese businesses and other. Culinary, everything from, you know, restaurants and delis to people wanting to make cheese and have a shop. And so we, we weren't going to give up on that agriculture. I,
0: that's all. I mean, that's why the first time I heard this, that was just what blew my mind was your attitude towards it all and your, your passion with agriculture. Um, it's very inspiring. And Aww. which I—that's why I wanted to have you on here. Um, yeah. So as that was going on too, and you—you and you went with cheese making, which I'm actually kind of surprised that with the USDA that they didn't try to stop that either. Did they? <laughs> did they try to do anything about that at all? I was just curious.
1: No. For for a while, they were saying when we had the sheep, we were making cheese and um they were saying that they were going to come and take all of the cheese and then um the Vermont department of ag got involved because of course our our cheese industry is huge and and they're like well if you take their cheese then you have to assume that any sheep cheese that comes from Europe is potentially contaminated and you're going to open up a whole hornet's nest and they were worried that Europe was then going to sue Vermont. And so they, they backed off of that one.
0: <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So as you're teaching um, cheese, or as you have the store with cheese, uh, and then also teaching, did you were you able to, um, after the quarantine, I guess, kind of restart what you all were wanting to do and, and have sheep? Or did you... Just continue on and trying to expand with the the, the store and, and the education.
1: Yeah, we had considered going back into sheep. Um, and Mr. Freeman actually called us. And this is after the claims court case is over. And he's like, look, i decided I want to get back into sheep dairying, And he said, would you find out if we can bring over some more sheep? <laughs> and so Larry calls up USDA. And he's like, we, I want to know about the importations for bringing importation regulations for bringing sheep over from Europe. And they're like, no, no, you, you can't bring sheep over for fear of mad cow disease. Um, but you can bring cattle. So, <laughs> and um, then they wanted to know who he was. And he said, you know, Dr. Felice. And they're like, excuse me, <laughs> you, you just won't go away. Uh <laughs> yeah. So, so we realized, um, you know, because there, there were other sheep that were um, from Europe that came in through Canada. And um, so the, there were dairy sheep genetics that, that came into the country around the same time as ours. And at one point, we asked USDA, we said, well, why aren't you going after them? And they said, well, give us their names and we will. And so then the the people in the sheep industry got really scared because they thought, oh, you know, we would rat them out, which we never would do. Um, so so there there were the genetics here, but there's very limited quantity of dairy sheep. And so we decided to focus on the, the cheese making and the consulting. And um all all of our labor was growing up and going off to college then. And so, you know, the, the good thing about going through the situation was um, it financially it was very, very tough, um, but it put us in a position that made the children eligible for every scholarship out there. <laughs> and So the, the girls got almost full scholarships to Middlebury College and then Francis did an internship at Harvard. And got a bunch of scholarships to Saint Lawrence University, so not not a way that I would recommend to put your children to college. But you know, we're always trying to look at what what were the bright sides to things that happen. Um, I love that. Yeah, I'm,
0: yeah. I'm curious then before because I have questions just on the the consulting and education and cheese side for today today's date. Um, is USDA still this strict and uh, do they act this way towards the whole sheep industry still?
1: Uh, you still can't import the genetics, you know. So here it is, twenty twenty three, and you still cannot import sheep, but you can import cattle. And USDA will say right out outright, you know, for fear of mad cow disease.
0: it's it, so wild.
1: It's, yeah, and it's just to keep up the front that they started with us, you know. Yeah, so so it's a a crazy situation hmm. and, and realize that um, these were a few <laughs> bad apples for lack of a, um, you know, a, 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 a more politically correct term <laughs> Yeah. Um, within USDA, because there were many people that we worked with within USDA that were really good. And one of the things that USDA did was, um, they did two criminal investigations of Larry. The first criminal first investigation, they tried to see if we had done anything wrong with the importation so that they, because we were getting too much support from the media in their eyes. And they wanted to be able to say, oh, well, they didn't do this wrong. So they they interviewed everyone within USDA that had interacted with us. They interviewed the truck driver that picked up the sheep from the um, from JFK and took them to the quarantine. They interviewed the truck driver that took them from the quarantine up to Vermont. You know, they interviewed everyone, and the the people within USDA all had wonderful things to say, and you know they were really good about it. So. When they couldn't find anything, they de- then did a personal criminal investigation, you know, to find out did he smoke pot in college or, <laughs> you know,
0: they, just they finding anything. Find anything. Yeah, that is wild.
1: Yeah. Huh.
0: So I am just gonna transition a little bit to the actual the cheese making because, um, like you are saying, you've been doing that for for quite some time, and then even just going to Three Shepherds Cheese, your website, the the the, the picture is of, it looks like a class. So yeah. I'm curious because one of the reasons why I have this podcast is myself along with most people, we are so disconnected from our food, the most disconnected we've ever been. I'm curious to hear just the experiences you hear from the folks that actually attend these cheese classes, if that sparks any interest. Um, yeah, I actually, that's, yeah, I'm just curious to hear how that's been and just the folks that go to these cheese making classes, just what's that like?
1: And it's, it's been incredible. We've had over 5,000 students and we always say there's only three people we would choose not to hang out with. And so cheese makes a great filter. You know, if someone's a cheese lover, you're going to do well. <laughs> and um, my, my philosophy is, is the same thing that Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine, medicine be thy food. And I really truly believe that our health is based on what we eat. And so, um, you know, I had 25 years of never having to go to the doctor. Larry had 28 years of never having to go. Um, he got bit by a tick and ruined that record, but only briefly and, um, had a full recovery. And, and so I think that, you know, what you eat, um, really determines how your body is going to be. And, um, that the, it's not only, you know, is this something that is healthy, you know, you can go to the, the store and you can get a, a, a piece of fruit or a vegetable, but how was that plant raised? And, you know, did it have the proper nutrients that it, that it needed? Was it shipped all over the place? And then that applies even more when you're dealing with um, dairy products and milk. And um, dairy products and meat. Excuse me. Un- unfortunately, in this country, the dairy industry is not doing milk any favors. And um, for cheese making, you need good milk. You you need milk that has been minimally handled and processed. And so, ideally, you would have raw milk. Um, and then there's a few cheeses that, for texture and consistency that it's a little better to have pasteurized milk because um, the calcium in milk is what gives you the bones of the cheese or the structure of the cheese. And so with raw milk, all the calcium is available. But when you pasteurize milk, you denature the calcium and make it biologically unavailable. And there's milk that is shipped around the country, pasteurized multiple times, and there's nothing left in it that can be made into cheese because there's no available calcium. And then with the large processors, they're ultra heat treating or ultra pasteurizing milk, which makes it that nothing, there's no nutrients, there's no calcium, nothing of of, um, importance is left in the milk. And you can't make cheese out of that. And not only can you not make cheese, but that milk is actually very toxic to children. And um I'm on a campaign to try to make the ultra heat treated milk illegal because if a child drinks it, it can't form curd within their stomach and it causes inflammation. And so it's it's very dangerous. So um so but as far as the teaching it, it's a lot of fun. And we find out that about a third of our students go on to make cheese commercially. A third will make cheese at home. And then a third will probably not make cheese again, but will often come back and take another class.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So with with just the topic of just raw dairy and, and, and raw cheese, are there different benefits that you can get out of sheep cheese versus, say, um, a cow? Yeah, a cow.
1: Yeah. So sheep have been milked for 2000 years longer than cattle. And so our bodies are more accustomed to it. And so um, when someone has a severe allergy, they're taking off everything except for sheep products. So they can have lamb, sheep, milk, cheese, um, and then peas, because that was our first harvested legume. And so very, very few people have reaction to sheep cheese. The fat in sheep sheep's milk is in smaller globules than cow's milk, which also makes it a little more digestible for people. You know, but if you, you can have good raw cow's milk cheese and goat and water buffalo,
0: I've I love uh, cow and goat milk. I haven't tried sheep milk, but I know one of my good friends who he probably drinks more raw dairy than anyone I've ever met. He raves about sheep milk. Um, yeah, he says it's so so delicious.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, for drinking, it's very sweet. Hmm. Um, when the children would put it on their cereal, they would think that their cereal was sweetened. Wow. Because they said it was so sweet, and you know, you can make ice cream straight from the milk. Yeah.
0: That just—that's uh, a shame that <laughs> with the USDA stuff. Because I'm just imagining America with just raw sheep milk and cheese available at stores that would just that'd be incredible (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean i've had i know there's some at whole foods i've had sheep cheese and it's delicious i've just never been able i've never seen it as milk
1: no no because um you know they don't produce as much milk as you know a, a cow will give you five gallons a day and um but, but there are you know, so like all the pecorino romanos, pecorino, pecora is sheep in Italian, and so pecorino that's the sheep cheese, uh, roquefort's a sheep cheese, manchego's a sheep cheese.
0: Hmm. Uh, I did not know that. that. That's you learn it's one of the new things I learned. <laughs> I'm trying to th- think, this is I don't know, I'm just kind of left speechless after hearing this story. Um. <laughs> I think that's really all I have on my end. So I guess with that being said, is there anything else that you would like to to share?
1: Um, no. You know, you can go to our website, the dot com. Um, we're doing lots of classes and consulting, and in April we're going to do a trip to Sicily, and that's going to be a lot of fun. And that's going to involve everything, not only just cheese, but it's going to have artichokes and fava beans and gelato and um bread and pasta <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a heck of a time
0: yeah yeah that's, that's awesome yeah well yeah so if you just want to check her out three shepherdscheese.com and thank you again for joining
1: oh thank you so much for having me ryan
0: you can find the full video on youtube at their Renaissance.